Well, I have to tell you, the very first Wellspring I ever came to was last February. Um, it was cold, and I'm pretty sure it was dark, just like it is now, just 7 o'clock. And I remember saying to myself, you must be a saint to be here at this <laughs> And at the end of my Wellspring, I said, this is so worth it. So why are we here this cold Saturday morning? Would you turn to the back of your folders and read with me the purpose statement in each of the three disciplines? This is our Wellspring purpose. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Discipline one, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart towards God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. Discipline to the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the Gospel. Discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God and the Gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the Gospel. I have been so blessed by the encouragement toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God that Wellspring has provided for me over the past several months. We have been given many helpful tools that point us to prayer and scriptures we can use to shepherd our hearts. I appreciate so much that our Wellspring lessons have exposed from God's Word even deeper layers of my sinful heart, the awful deceitfulness of sin and its dangerous power to entangle me, it doesn't let go easily. Praise God, there is a fight in my heart. Shepherding our heart is the starting point in the list of disciplines because we know from God's word that our hearts are the source of what comes out of us. When we are watchful to prayerfully press our thinking, our feelings, and our reasoning up to God's word and what it teaches, we are strengthened to think and to do what is right with pure motives using wholesome words. My work in life for the past several years has been that of a caregiver for my husband. It is a role that has been exactly what I needed to grow in love and dependence on the Lord. It comes with lots of stretch marks on my heart. And as you know, not all days are created equal in how nicely we stretch. One thing I have found helpful to do on a regular basis after prayer and worship time with God in his word is to choose a verse to go. It's one that's fitting for my current heart needs. First of all, if I can, I try to jot it down on a card or a piece of paper for the day. And that verse is going in my pocket as my pocket reminder for the next several days. 
Often it's something short and easy to remember. I meditate on it. I make sure I understand the depth of the truth that's tucked in those few precious words. I like to look up the definition of keywords to make sure I get the full impact of the teaching. I pray the verse often throughout my day. I speak it loud when I can. In the car is a great place to practice your rehearsing your verse out loud. I may not remember that verse in a month, but it is a precious truth that I can claim for a day or for a week. It's purposeful thinking on a few of God's words that correct or encourage my heart for the season or trial I'm facing. I find that the concept stays with me as truth in my heart even when I can't remember exactly how it's worded or the address. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 44.8. It says, In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I have found that this verse is helpful no matter where my heart is, because it prompts me to consider what I can boast about my God. Who is he? He's my creator, my king, my defender, my rock of refuge, my counselor, my judge, my savior. I can consider his character. He is just. He is loving. He's always right and always speaks truth. He's long-suffering. He's perfect and holy and eternal and knows everything about everything. Or what about thinking on all he does? He juggles the whole world and moves the hearts of kings, and yet he gives me favor in even the simplest of things I ask of him. Like finding the last two cans of beans I need hidden high on the shelf in the back in the grocery store. I could go on and on, and that's the point. Boasting in God stirs my heart to be grateful for his constant presence and provision in my life. It reminds me to thank him. It is actually giving glory to him. And above all, I must remember his saving grace to me. This is a verse that ultimately causes me to rehearse the gospel and worship the Lord. Discipline to the home. My husband Richard and I have been married for 36 years. For about the last 15 years, he has been having small strokes that slowly have affected his cognitive processing skills, the way he thinks. He has dementia from all of the strokes, but God has been so good to us. In 2010, shortly after his 21st birthday, Richard accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. He has several other major health issues now, but our life together in this way 
has become the way of the Lord allows us to serve him. I absolutely know that God is completely in control of our circumstances and that this life is absolutely the very best thing for both of us. Anything I would choose other than what God has permitted would be second best or worse. In a very organic sort of way, our lives have become a ministry that God has allowed us together because of our life circumstances. I speak openly about our faith and freely witness to others that help with his care and come into our home. In the context of our home, a struggle I was having in recent years is how do I not become strictly clinical in his caretaking? As I watch my husband's decline, a certain emotional detachment has come along with all there is to do. I was aware of it. I didn't like it. I didn't know that it was a lack of heart shepherding. Perhaps some of you can identify with this. My heart needs to be soft as I perform the many repetitive, thankless, humbling daily tasks. It helps as I work throughout the day to remember God's word, to pray, and to consider there really are a great many things to be thankful for. He has provided everything we need for life and godliness. We are surrounded by God's compassion and mercy. He has given Richard and me faith to believe and hearts of repentance. As the Spirit of God controls my heart, what bubbles over is a reflection of my Savior's characteristics, and the Lord is not clinical about dealing with us. Another thing I've learned as I watch over my heart throughout the day is to try to find opportunities to talk about the Lord. The season of life I am in right now is hard, but strangely enough, I found myself saying to a friend, I'm finding these have become the best days of our lives because we are dependent on our God more than ever. Richard's illness has been the vehicle that the Lord has chosen to bring him to himself. Last year, as I was being trained about the responsibility of shepherding my heart, I became burdened for Richard to hear God's word for the same purpose, however the Lord may work that out. So, at some point in the year, I began reading the New Testament out loud at breakfast every morning. Recently, Richard has started sundowning. It has very difficult evening hours. One particular night a few weeks ago, I was so tired, and I hadn't done my Bible reading yet. So while he was confused and restless, I sat down next to his bed and began reading my chapters in Deuteronomy to him. He calmed down. After a bit, he fell asleep. The next night I asked if he would like me to read to him again, and he said yes. The following night, he asked me. Now it's what we do each night. 
His heart and mind are quieted as he listens to God's word. It's another gift the Lord's given us. It's a sweet time together that did not characterize our marriage before this season of life. The third ministry, the third discipline ministry, not too long ago, someone at church asked me how my week had gone. Awful was my too honest answer. But God has been so good. I have been completely dependent on him. I trust him no matter what. He gives us the best every time. And then a whole big conversation ensued. I surprised myself with the genuine peace and joy I felt and was eager to offer words of encouragement, pointing her to our mutual source of strength and courage, Jesus Christ. Other days, I'm the one who needs a sister to encourage me. And I love that we are available for each other, sharing the burdens of life because of our love for Jesus. One last thing that I've been so blessed by within Wellspring is our diversity. I love how different we are in the body of Christ, and yet we have these really important major life things in common. We are sinners that love Jesus. We share various trials and temptations, but we have the same Redeemer. We will spend eternity together, realizing that we are each in a similar, imperfect condition softens my heart to be more compassionate and patient. It is a delight to my heart to be able to talk about the Lord. Um, there is that handout, and there's some quick go-to verses for you to get you started. I'm sure you'll find your own. But thank you so much for letting me boast in the Lord this morning. Good morning. Can I get my cockpit set up? It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you would start by opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. That is where we are going to be today. <clears throat> it is so good to be with you. Let me uh, pray before we get started, and uh, and we will uh, look at this gospel message from Jesus. Lord, I, I do praise you for this morning, and Father, I, I thank you for your word that we can know you. Father, we can have your word that we know what is pleasing to you. Lord, that is my desire, Lord, that we would be men, women, that, that in everything we do, we make it our aim to please you. Father, please allow these words from your gospel to resonate in our minds and our hearts that we, we, we would leave here today more in love with you than when we first got here. Father, you are an awesome God. You are so worthy of praise, and we do praise you, and we do thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
I'd love to start by just telling you where this message uh, of of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where it has come from, how I have used it in my ministry as a biblical counselor. The, the Sermon on the Mount gives us a very clear picture of what the Christian life is to look like. Uh, it's a comparing contrast. Jesus starts this message with saying, this is what the saved person. This is what the believer in Jesus Christ looks like in contrast to I would say at least 13 areas that for this audience that they practice just their external religion and for us it's 13 areas where sin can easily entangle us. Let me this is a unique message and I'll, I'll tell you why. We are, once you get to Matthew 5, verse 3, all the way through verse 7, I am teaching red-lettered portion of Scripture. Everything is Jesus' words. Uh, that is kind of interesting because this first message, when Jesus taught it, when he spoke it, he would, his audience were not believers. This message to the original audience was a rebuke for how they were living. Jesus rebuked his audience, and they hated him for it. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it's unique to the other Gospels. Matthew's purpose in writing this was to the Jew, that they would believe, and it was to the Jewish believers that they would continue to leave their practice of Judaism, and that is the external religion. And now, how does it apply to us? Uh, because the original audience, they weren't believers. The next audience, it was a mixture of believers and Jews, and here we are, years later, taking this message, and how do we apply it to our heart? It, it is a perfect comparing contrast. This is what the person on their way to heaven looks like, and this is how easily you can be entangled by the sin of this world. So again, uh, I want you to recognize this is not a recipe how to get to heaven, but it's a picture for those that are on their way there. Uh, I printed out, it was the last page in the, in the stack you got, and it's from MacArthur's study Bible, and instead of me just reading it, which is just horrible for you to have to listen to, you can read along with me. But again, as I read this, I want you to think of this entire message as this is a good tool to examine your own heart. So, here we go. John MacArthur, from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. We can see at least five reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is important. First, it shows the absolute necessity of the new birth. Its standards are much too high and demanding to be met by human power. Only those who partake in God's own nature through Jesus Christ can fulfill such demands. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount go far beyond those of Moses in the law, demanding not only righteous actions, but righteous attitudes. Not just that men do right, but that they be right. 
No part of scripture more clearly shows man's desperate situation without God. Because remember, the, the original audience, they were trying to be saved by their works. Second, the sermon intends to drive the listener to Jesus Christ as man's only hope of meeting God's standard. If man cannot live up to the divine standard, he needs a supernatural power to enable him. The proper response to the sermon leads to Christ. And third, the sermon gives God's pattern for happiness and true success. It reveals the standard, the objectives, the objectives, and the motivations that, with God's help, will fulfill what God has designed man to be. Here we find the way to joy, peace, and contentment. And we live in a world that is looking for joy, peace, and contentment in all the wrong places. <laughs> Fourth, the sermon is perhaps the greatest spiritual resource of, for witnessing, for reaching others for Christ. A Christian who personifies these principles of Jesus will be a spiritual magnet, attracting others to the Lord who empowers him to live as he does. The life obedient to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount is the church's greatest tool for evangelism. And fifth, the life obedient to the maxims of this proclamation is the only life that is pleasing to God. That is the believer's highest reason for following Jesus' teaching. It pleases God. So as we look at this sermon, we're going to start, I'm going to break it up, and there's going to be transitions, but we're going to start with uh, the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. There's 10 verses that this, Jesus is describing as the person that, is, that possesses salvation. And then we're going to look at the following 83 verses from Matthew 5, 21 through 7, 23 that draw attention to at least 13 areas uh, where the, the, the Pharisees in this first audience really prized their external piety. And again, it, it's areas where we are prone to get easily entangled in sin. So let's read together. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 through 12, and then we're just going to break it down from there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, so here we are. What does it mean to be blessed? How should I understand them? Uh, if this describes the one pleasing to God, what must our lives look like? 
What what does it mean to look like you're poor in spirit, to to be somebody mourning? And, and that is what we're going to look at, and I'm going to go slowly through the Beatitudes, and, and here's what it is to be poor in spirit. It is to recognize you're spiritually bankrupt. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do anything for yourself. You are utterly dependent on, on another, and it's utterly dependent on Jesus Christ. Uh, this poor in spirit is nothing to do with anything material. It is everything about spiritually. We are totally dependent on him. Jesus is describing unworthy sinners that are dependent upon his grace. An understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit will affect our prayer life. If you recognize how utterly dependent you are on our Lord, it will affect your prayers. It's understanding our greatest need is something we can't find anywhere else but in a Savior. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Uh, I'm going to quote J.C. Ryle. He makes the following statement. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who mourn. He means those who sorrow for sin. They grieve daily over their own shortcomings. They are, these are, they who trouble themselves more about sin than about anything on earth. The remembrance of it is grievous to them. The burden of it is intolerable. Blessed are such. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Scripture says one day they shall weep no more. They shall be comforted. That, that is our hope in the midst of, of mourning over some, our sin. Is One day we will be comforted. The one who mourns is the one who has an attitude of repentance. Uh, as you consider being poor in spirit and mourning over sin, consider Paul's words from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, This is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And then Paul says, Which I am chief. If you have a right attitude about your neediness, if you have a right attitude about mourning over sin, you, you will recognize in your house you are the biggest sinner. In this room, you are the biggest sinner. I need to recognize I am the biggest sinner. Uh, verse 5, blessed are the meek. Some translations say gentle. They will inherit the earth. The one who is meek and gentle is the one that is patient and can, has a contentive spirit. And again, I'm going to quote Ryle again. Makes the following comment in his commentary. He means those who are of patient and contented spirit. They are willing to put up with little honor here below. They can bear injury without resentment. They are not ready to take offense. Let me sum it up this way. In the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, being sinned against, can you sit back and just say, God, I know you're in control of this? When Diana was giving testimony to her life, it was just the gentleness of being able for her to sit back and say, God, I, I know you're in control of this. I, I don't have to go fix this 
This is fixed. You are in control. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Jesus is using an analogy of, of hunger and thirst. It, it represents two of the necessities for life. Jesus is demonstrating that righteousness is required for, for spiritual for our spiritual life. And our righteousness is only going to be found in a risen Savior. Our, our righteousness is not going to be found in, in doing things, by giving, by, by being kind to other people. Our righteousness has nothing to do with our actions. It's dependent on the Lord. But that does change the way we live. Again, Ryle, quoting Ryle a lot today. He is one of my favorite authors, though. Uh, Jesus means those who desire above all things to be entirely comforted to the mind, conformed to the mind of God. They want not so much to be rich or wealthy or learned as to be holy. Blessed are all such. They shall have enough one day. In Psalm 17, 15 says, they shall awake up after God's likeness and be satisfied. There is a promise for us that we can be satisfied. And our satisfaction is going to be coming from hungering and thirsting <laughs> after our Lord. Let me ask you a question. I realize it's early on a Saturday morning. There truly appears to be a desire to have spiritual growth. How about the rest of the week? Do you desire to grow? Do, do you desire to look more like your Savior? <clears throat> As we shepherd our heart, it will impact how we think. It, it will impact the way we view the world we live in. So the question is, do I, do I hunger and thirst? Is that the most important thing I have in my life, is to pursue my Lord? Verse 7, blessed is the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To be merciful is to be one that forgives uh, when sinned against. To have compassion on others when they sin. God will show us and be merciful. Being merciful is not an option for the Christian life. In Luke 6.36, it is a command. We are called to be merciful because God is mercy to us. Are you, are you merciful to others when they offend you? Are you merciful to others when you have an expectation that just isn't met? Do you allow others to, to fail or sin without great condemnation? If your spouse, your friend sins against you, are you more offended that they've sinned against you or that they've sinned against a holy God? We should be more concerned that our God has been sinned against. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart describes the one who is truly righteous on the inside. Uh, Jesus was rebuking this audience because everything was on their external of how they lived, but their hearts were not pure. They're not a fake on the outside, which would be pious fraud. 
but the heart is pure. Jesus is saying that true purity is attained when God grants it to a person who hungers and thirsts after him. God speaking in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7. I, I know you're familiar with this verse. When I, when I read it, you'll know it. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We have continually throughout the day an audience of one that sees our heart. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Uh, peacemaking is it involves conflict resolution. It involves seeking forgiveness quickly. It is willing to make restitution if that is required. It's refusing to seek revenge, uh, as well as humbly serving our enemies, those that we may even think that we're not close to. Ryle, again, makes this comment, Blessed are all such peacemakers. Listen to this. They are doing the very work which the Son of God began when he came to earth the first time, and he will finish when he returns the second time. In being a peacemaker, God is allowing us to do the very work that his Son came to earth to do. Are you a peacemaker? Do, do you forgive others quickly? Are you willing to forgive? Do you seek forgiveness when you have offended somebody? Or do you desire revenge when you're sinned against? And, and you know what? Reven revenge can look sometimes so spiritual. The silent treatment. Uh, that's not helpful. It, there's no blessing in the silent treatment. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this persecution, 10 and 11 go together. This persecution in 10, uh, at this point in history, we don't see this so much in our country. This would be more of a violent persecution. And we have brothers and sisters around the world in, in closed countries to the gospel that are being persecuted for their righteousness, uh, having their heads cut off. Uh, but it, it continues on. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And this is more the persecution we're going to see here in the church in the United States at this time. Uh, this is both verbally, it can be slander, it, it could be something like a slap, but it, it's not the, the persecution that we see in verse 10. But this, this is not persecution because you're rude or because you're a jerk. This is persecution for, for righteousness sake. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say you're in a small group and you're doing core questions and you have a sister who is struggling with a sin and you, you go to speak to them about their sin and then they say things about you that are unkind, unloving, maybe not even true. That's the type of persecution. Uh, and, and here's the thing, we are called to be bold, we're, we're not called to say nothing. 
And, and there's a whole lesson here about admonishment, but admonishment is always a warning based on Scripture. But there's times where we can go to somebody with, with God's Word and, and just ask him, would you consider this? And then they per, you may have persecution for not being gracious enough, not overlooking their sin. Uh, so that's the type of I would say, for all of us in this country at this time, most persecution that looks like it's probably going to come from other believers. That's the reality of it. Uh, verse 12 calls us to rejoice when we receive persecution because of God. Uh, it's not that we would shy away. It's not that we want to be rude or be a jerk. But, but we know what God's Word says, we're blessed when we have the opportunity to rep represent our Lord well here in this life. We get to uh, verses 13 now through 16, and, and we're seeing a transition. He, he's, Jesus is changing from, this is the picture of the one who's going to heaven, and, and now he's calling us in verses 13 to 16, uh, He's calling to here to be salt of the earth and light in a dark world. And in commentary that I read said this, Surely it means, if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from these two figures, salt and light. That there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character. If we are true Christians, it will never do to idle through life, thinking we are living, thinking and living like others. If we mean to be owned by Christ as his people, we have grace. Then it must be seen. Have we the Spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be difference in habit, taste, and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear that the true, true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church on Sunday. Salt and light evidently imply peculiar, this is a tongue twister for me, peculiarity both in heart and life of faith and practice, we must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. And I want to take a, a comment here, and I, this Lord had really been impressing this upon me. In the middle of that, I said, if we have grace, have we grace, and it should be seen. I, I want to just say this. I think our culture, the Christian culture, has redefined grace. Uh, let me tell you, no, I'm not telling you. I'm going to remind you what grace is. Grace is salvation. Grace is our sanctification. Grace is not turning our head to sin. It is not gracious to allow people to sin boldly. Uh, I, I know I have been rebuked. I have been corrected in saying, you aren't showing me any grace. You're just calling me to be obedient. 
well, what's the definition of grace? Our, our graciousness to a lost world is kindness. And I know you know this. And almost every time you see the word kindness in scripture, the context is repentance. Us being gracious to others is helping others to repent. It is not overlooking sin. And I hope that's clear. I, I have just truly have just felt the burden that the church, at least in this culture, has redefined what grace means. Grace is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and how it applies to us. Let, let me put it to you this way. If you want to have influence in a dark world, if you want to live in a manner that is different than the world, uh, this word of God needs to permeate your mind, your thoughts, and, and your actions. It's tied to the wellspring disciplines that we just looked at. Uh, there, there needs to be a difference. And this is interesting. This just popped up on my screen the other day. I, I love analytics. I love figures. Uh, and this is from Barna Research. I, I don't agree with everything they say, uh, but I found this really, really, really interesting. Of professing believers, 56% of believers say that the Bible is relevant. 19% say that they read the Bible at least four days a week. And 19% believe that the Word of God is relevant. Uh, that's living like the world. I, the Word of God needs to permeate it. It needs to change us. It's not enough to come to church on Sunday. And yikes. Okay. I'm going to take one more section and then we'll take a break. And, and the, here's where we're going to go. Verses 17 through 20. Jesus is drawing attention. Remember, his audience, they knew the Old Testament, they, they knew the Word of God. And Jesus now is drawing attention to the preeminence of Scripture. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. And, and here's what's happening here. These, this audience, were, they were all about re religious externals. And now Jesus is getting ready as he turns in verse 21. He is turning to the heart. Jesus is now comes the rebuke. He has told them, here's what the believer looks like. Here's the importance of the word of God. And, and he's getting ready now to deal, do heart surgery with these this Jewish audience. The religious leaders were caught up in outward acts that minimized God's word. They had twisted it to, to comfort the way they lived. Jesus is preparing us and this audience to go back to the word of God. The Pharisees practiced their religious acts. The, the whole audience knew it as a means of eternal life. And Jesus is pointing them to their need for a Savior. And in verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For us sitting here 2,000 years later, we realize the only righteousness that surpasses is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. 
his audience didn't know that. They weren't looking for a savior. They were looking for an earthly king, not a heavenly king. The Jewish audience knew the Old Testament, and they knew a Messiah was coming. They, they knew he would be the savior. And we know our savior was the righteousness that would surpass the Pharisees. They truly wanted an earthly king. They did not want a heavenly king. So as we move on, I'm going to say this, and then we're going to take a quick break. But again, in the sermon, Jesus is making this next transition from the description of one going to heaven to the demands of how we should live. And Jesus is taking the hearers of the sermon and their religious system and showing them how it failed to give God glory. So let's take a break. Let's come back at 8 o'clock, and uh, we will uh, go through Matthew 5.21 all the way through 7.23. Thank you. So here we go, starting in Matthew 5.21, and, and here is where Jesus, to the original audience, begins his rebuke. And... I, I pray that as we look at this, we will be examining our own hearts uh, in the same way that Jesus was confronting his first audience. Uh, if you have subtitles in your Bible, when you get to verse 21, it probably says murder. And, and here's the thing. Jesus' audience, they knew the third commandment, thou shalt not murder. You know, this is silly, being brought up Catholic, uh, which has a lot of religion to it and externity, but I know my testimony before becoming a true believer, if somebody said, how do you know you're going to heaven? I would say, well, I haven't murdered anybody yet. And I meant it. It wasn't a joke. It's, I'm a pretty good person. And, and so here, Jesus is, is, is confronting them on murder. Remember the, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, where Jesus, he says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, obey the Ten Commandments. He says, I've done that. Uh, and give away everything, which Jesus was getting to his heart. And he walked away, rejected, rejected, and just feeling really sad for himself because he was a rich guy and he didn't want to part with his cash. But here's the thing that's going on here. Jesus is now expanding it and, and he's talking about anger. And, and let me talk about how we can know Scripture got twisted. The, the Jews were excellent at recognizing the third commandment, thou shalt not murder. But you go back to the first crime ever reported in scripture in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel God didn't say to Cain why did you murder your brother why are you angry God would write Genesis 4 God would write to the heart but in this religious system they, they cared more about the external of it they cared more about the, the deed of I haven't murdered anybody than the the anger going on in their heart. You get to verse 23 here in this section, and, and Jesus is talking about before you give your gifts at the altar, 
go and be reconciled. What Jesus is saying, before you worship God, repent. Before you worship God, repent of your anger. Jesus is dealing with the heart, and the Jews had always justified themselves by their outward action. And I think we're capable of doing the same thing. Are you seeing the contrast that Jesus is bringing to them? Verses 27 through 30, Jesus is dealing with adultery. And, and in 27 through 30 goes really well with 30 through 32 where Jesus talks about divorce because here's what the Jews had done to make themselves look really good on the outside. To get a divorce is just all they had to do is write a certificate of dismissal. So before they commit adultery, they give bride number one a certificate of dismissal so they weren't committing adultery. They were looking at the outer act. But Jesus here goes right to the heart and he talks about lust. And, and he's saying, even if your thoughts are wrong, there needs to be amputation. There needs to be a radical amputation. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus is, is addressing the heart. He's, he's not addressing their actions because their actions were pious fraud. Their hearts were not near him. And, and I need to make a side note here because I, I realize everyone in this room probably recognizes the need to repent of sinful actions and deeds. But when you look at this, there's a call here to repent of sinful thinking. If you want to grow in conquering sin, it'll start with, with repenting, with agreeing with God when the thoughts are sinful. Because sometimes we're okay with just saying, well, it's not like I did this. But it's our thought life. It's, it's the purity that Scripture is calling us to. And going on to verse 31, 32, talking about divorce, the Jewish tradition, the only requirement was this simple certificate of dismissal. It made it easy that nobody, nobody was committing adultery because of this certificate. But what they had done is they had twisted, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, they had twisted God's word. God's desire for marriage was always one man one woman. God's desire was always until death separates. But, but they had twisted God's word. And, and I'll say this as Christians living in a, a very evil, sinful time. We, we should be broken about the state of marriages in, in the world we live in. Uh, the, this last year with the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage, uh, as Christians, we should be absolutely broken that God's law is being broken, that, that people are, are far from pleasing to the Lord. And I'll say this as well, too. I realize in a room this size, there's maybe somebody here that has been divorced. 
the point is it drives us back to recognizing our righteousness not in our actions but in the finished work of Jesus Christ we, we need to mourn over sin this is good news we, we will sin we'll sin again today we'll sin tomorrow but we are able to be drawn close to the gospel as we mourn over our own sin and repent. Uh, Matthew 5, 33-37 talks about oaths and and keeping our word. The, the, The Pharisees, these Jews, had made an oath for everything. Jesus is condemning flippant, profane, hypocritical oaths that were common among these Jewish leaders. And Jesus just says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And I would say, are you known for having words of integrity? Can people count on you? When you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you say you're not going to do something, you don't do it. it. It is a call here, inwardly, I, I need to do what I said I'm going to do. Verses 38 through 42, it's an eye for an eye. We, as human beings, we have a desire for vengeance. But the, <clears throat> the Pharisees had an inordinate concern for personal rights. Their self-interest, domi- when self-interest dominates justice, it is replaced by vengeance. How about you, do you retaliate when you're sinned against? Do you want to pay back? Can, can you trust that God is at work in the midst of your circumstances? Can you believe the promises that he is working all things for good, for his good purpose, for those that love him? Uh, it, it is important for us as believers to recognize God's promises to us. You know, again, I'll say maybe your eye for an eye looks much more subtle. Maybe you just avoid people. Maybe you just move on. Don't deal with with the problem. Maybe it can even be the silent treatment. In in Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus talks about loving your enemies. Jesus was contrasting the Jewish tradition kind of love and the kind of love that God calls us to. MacArthur, in his commentary, nowhere did the Pharisees, Pharisees' humanistic, self-centered system of religion differ more from God's divine standard than the matter of love. Nowhere had God's standard been so corrupt as in the way the self-righteous Pharisees view themselves in relation to others. Uh, how do you do at loving your enemies? How are you doing at loving the people around you? Is it the agape love? You know, every time you see God in Scripture and love is being described as one of God's attributes, that love is the agape love. It is a die to self. It is the love that would have a great God send his son to die on the cross. Are you willing to die to self? Are you willing to love your enemies? The first six areas Jesus is addressing was murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, vengeance, and love. The the religious leaders, 
their tradition, they had twisted God's word so that they could live sinfully, but they thought they looked, they looked holy. Now Jesus is pointing out that they overlooked their hearts. And as we move through chapter 6, we're moving from the outward righteousness, from things that you would see on the outward, and he's now talking about what's, what's going on in uh, their, their, their righteousness when it comes to giving, prayer, and fasting. So let me continue as, as we look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, giving to the needy. The Jewish tradition was to make a big deal. <clears throat> it said, do not announce it with trumpets. I don't know what it would look like to, to have trumpets blowing when somebody gives money, but I can tell you the religious system I grew up in, I can remember once a year in the back wall of the church, they would list the name and the amount of money that the big givers gave. And, and it would be a motivation, I want my name on the list. I could only imagine that. I was just a young kid, and I thought that's the way I grew up, and I thought that's just part of it. Here Jesus is condemning the way that they were giving. And, and the audience knew it. This audience knew that they were being rebuked. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. I don't have a clue what that looks like, but I can tell you this is what Jesus means. Our giving should be an act of worship. If you feel that your giving is, is you're being compelled to give, that's, that's not what Jesus is looking for. If we give of ourselves, give of our stuff, we give to others as an act of worship. I, I gotta ask you, do you see your giving as an act of worship? Think about it, to, to show you how big of a deal the Jews made out of giving. <clears throat> the tradition at the time here in the early church, you think of Ananias and Sapphira, that they thought they needed to come and say, hey, we sold this property and they lie. Uh, but Here's, here's the thing. They could have just as an act of worship given what they wanted to give. But no. The, uh, the eighth area that we can easily be entangled, and they certainly were, in Matthew 6, 5-15, and it's prayer. And I really find this is interesting that the topic of prayer has the most verses than any other area in this sermon. Jesus was addressing and condemning the way they prayed. Their, pray, their prayers were just ritualized. They cared more about being heard or seen than, than the, that they were communicating with God. Remember Jesus back going back to early on when, when we first started Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. When, when I know I'm needy, that will drive my prayer life. Blessed is the one who's utterly dependent on God. Being poor in spirit will affect our prayer, our prayer life. Think of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17. Uh, be joyful. Pray continually. Give thanks in all things. This is God's will for you. This is an act of worship. It is your prayer life. And I, I have been convicted. I, I'm encouraged. I see growth. But I know sometimes, and this is just a side note away from my notes, I realize some people, as I talk to people about prayer and, and their, 
their disappointment with their own prayer lives is because they find themselves praying about the same five things every day, the same way. Uh, if prayer is to be worshipful, I need to, for me, I need to engage Scripture. I, I need to be praying through Scripture. I need to look at a Psalm 23. I need to look at a Psalm 103 or 145, which just lifts so many attributes that I could pray through. Uh, prayer is to be an act of worship, not mechanical. It, it's not, I do this and I get that. Uh, I, I need to be praying in a way that shows my dependence on the Lord. And uh, if you talk to people that are disciplined in, in prayer, uh, they have a track that they run on. They just don't leave it to themselves, but they either know the people they want to pray for, they know the circumstances, they, they give some thought to what their prayer life looks like. Uh, fasting, verses 16 through 18. Uh, the Jewish tradition was to fast and just to put these, have an awful look on their face that they're just absolutely pain. And, and here Jesus is pointing to three outward practices. You're giving, your prayer, and your fasting. They weren't doing it in a, as a means of worship. They were doing it to be thought well of by others. Verses 19 through 24, chapter 6, should have a subtitle in your the Bible called Treasures in Heaven. Uh, the problem Jesus is calling attention to in these verses is not wealth. This is not, we need to take a vow to be poor. Uh, being in poor, not having money, being impoverished is not a means to spirituality. What Jesus is drawing attention to is what's your heart's relationship to material things? Are, are you willing to part with with what God has blessed you with? Is your desire just to go get more? The the question here is, does stuff and things preoccupy your peer, your pursuit of the Lord? And I realize that this is a fine line. Uh, I know I have an audience of, of ladies. But when you come to being responsible, it, I, it is responsible to work. But there is excesses, uh, there is a responsibility in saving, but is that what's preoccupying, is that what's driving my mind? I, I need to recognize my stuff, my things, how I make a living, is it an act of worship? as you support your husbands, for those that are married, is it, do you recognize your husband's ministry in the workforce is an act of worship to God? We are testimonies in, in how we work. And, and I know this is a, it's, it is a fine line where worrying about tomorrow, and that's where Jesus is going next. Funny how that is. Uh, but, but keep in mind, it, it, is, it, it is an area when you consider what our earthly possessions are. Hold them loosely. You know, I, I hold them loosely. It, it, is, it can be hard. Um, Matthew 6, 25-34 talks about worry. And as I pointed out, prayer was the number one. Uh, number two is worry. Jesus gives 
a, a lot of verses and a lot of words speaking about worry. In this passage, three times he says, do not be anxious. He says, do not, do not worry. Verses 25, 31, and 34. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, do not even worry about the necessities of life. Don't even worry about what you're going to eat. Jesus is giving a command here to us to not be anxious. MacArthur, and I'm very succinct, I really like what he wrote here. Verses 23, 31, 34 give four reasons why worry, being anxious, is wrong. Here they are. One, it is unfaithful because of our master. Worry is unnecessary because of our father. Three, unreasonable because of our faith. And unwise because of our future. He continues, he says, making reasonable provisions for tomorrow is sensible, but to be anxious about tomorrow is foolish and unfaithful. And I need to ask, how are you doing at shepherding your heart away from worry? Um, Jerry Bridges wrote a book like 10 years ago now called Respectable Sins, where in Christian circles, being anxious and worry has become a respectable sin. But here, in, in just a few verses, Jesus is saying, do not worry, do not be anxious. Even about the most big, largest necessities we have in life, do not worry. Uh, the twelfth area where we're prone to get entangled in sin, judging others, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And I'm going to need to go a little bit quicker for you guys. Uh, and, and here, the, the Pharisees were oppressively judgmental. They were condemning. They were self-righteous. They were egotistical. Their judgments were unmerciful. Uh, what we see here, verse 2 speaks to the wrong view of others. In verse 3 through 5, the wrong view of ourselves. That the correct view is to take the log out of our own eye. I know this is something that frequently comes up in, in counseling, and I'll explain it like this. When you're asking somebody to, to look at themselves first, to examine their own heart, sometimes I'll take a piece of paper and I'll draw, draw a circle and say, there's your problem right there. And how much of this problem do you own? I've had people say none. Sometimes they'll say... 1% of the problem is mine. Sometimes they'll say 10%, so I will just take 10%, 90%. And, and here's the thing, to take the log out of your own eye, take your eye off this 90% and own what is here. Own the 10% that's yours. If it's 1% of the problem is you, own the 1%. Seek forgiveness, confess it as sin. God is calling us to look at our own hearts, not to be judging the heart of somebody else. Uh, here's the thing, when we judge others, when, when, when we look, this is all we can see is the 90%, we are being unmerciful to others, to, to another person who is in the same condition as us, a sinner, in need of God's grace. 
Jesus continues on in, in verses 7 through 12, saying, Ask, seek, knock, and to love others. Here's the conclusion of the main theme of the sermon. Ultimately, Jesus is drawing his hearers back to trusting God in the midst of your situation. There's no need to judge others. I need to sit back. I, I don't need to figure out my wife. I don't need to figure out one of the other elders. I, I, I need to look at my own heart in it and not judge others. Verses 7 through 11, Bridget Gapler judging others, and it's tied then to verse 12, the golden rule. Verse 12 is, so in everything, do unto others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophet. God, God again, in his word, is telling us, look at yourself and treat people how you want to be treated. How about you? Do you, do you treat others that way? 7.14 is a warning. As Jesus concludes his teaching, he warns that it is a very narrow gate. It's not the wide gate. The one that leads to eternal life is narrow, and the one that is wide leads to destruction. The Jews twisted scripture to make everything permissible. They overlooked their hearts. Jesus' teaching, he goes on, verses 15 through 24, the tree and its fruit. Jesus warns his hearers, uh, that there's going to be false prophets. They're going to come in sheep's clothes and they're going to really be wolves. In, in the church in the United States, where we're at, we have that right now. It's the a half a gospel masquerading as the whole gospel. Uh, it, it could be that uh, sanctification comes from another means other than from the Holy Spirit, from God, from the revealed word to us. Uh, God's, maybe those that are twisting God's word that sin isn't sin. Uh, it, it's a sad day when you see the Christian church saying, you know what, we're okay with homosexual marriage. Uh, it's not sinful. It's, it's a different culture. Uh, and and I, I chose the big one, but there are so many areas where, where we look at God's word and we say, well, that's not sinful. And again, uh, these are, should be the most frightening words that you find in Scripture in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is frightening to me. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons and perform miracles? And I will say plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So here's what has gone on in, in this three chapters, all read in Jesus' words. He, he is drawing us to look at our heart. The original audience, he was rebuking them because they overlooked their heart. And for us, 2,000 years later, this is a way for us to evaluate our heart. Jesus provides wisdom to those that hear. And he continues on to that wisdom in verse 24. Feel free to read with me in chapter 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them to practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Remember what I told you earlier, 19% of the people think that God's word is still relevant. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, but yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew, and it beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as the teachers of the law. The carpenter's closing thoughts in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It is a contrast between divine righteousness and human righteousness, all which is unrighteousness. It is a contrast between divine revelation and human religion, between divine truth and human falsehood, between trusting God and trusting self. It is a contrast between God's grace and man's work. How about you? Are, are you amazed at God's word? Are you amazed at Jesus' teaching? Are you amazed at what he has accomplished on the, on, on the cross? If, if your heart is not in awe of what a great Savior we serve, you need to come back and, and just spend time in his word. Uh, you need to be caring for your heart. You need to be thinking rightly. If, you're, if you are in a season where you're not at all, reach out to a friend and ask them to help them. Because we should, as believers, be living every day. Uh, I don't say this to embarrass you, Diana, but listening to your testimony of the awe in the midst of, in the, midst of the trial the Lord has for you and your awe and His perfect provision is a testimony to me. Thank you. Let me pray, and then you guys have small groups. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that for me, Lord, I would always be in awe with what a great God you are. Father, you are an amazing God, that you would send your Son, who is God, who became man, who lived on this earth, who lived a perfect life, who went to the cross and died a horrific death on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And Father, when he was buried, he rose again. He, he conquered even death. He conquered sin, and he's now at the right hand sitting next to you. Father, we praise you for the reality of the gospel. Father, we should be awed that you would love us first when we were so unlovely. Father, I pray for these ladies, Lord. I pray for the remainder of their morning here. That would be a blessed time in a small group. And Lord, I pray for their day as they go home or to work or whatever they may have to do. Father, that they would just be remembering their utter need for you. That they would be broken and mourning their own sin. And Father, no matter what the circumstances is, Lord, that they could sit back and say, God, I trust you. Father, we pray all these things in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's great being with you, ladies. Thank you.